Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Read Option Podcast. I have the whole band back this week. Friendly Wiseman, Dre Harris, joining me for a very eventful week. We had week two of college football. We had a lot of things happening in the NFL. We had week one. And then there's been some hirings and firings around the college football landscape. So I'm excited to dive into this episode. There's a ton that we're going to get into in today's show. But Dre, welcome back, man. It seems like it's been forever since you've been on the podcast. We missed you, man. How's everything going? It's going well, man. Thanks for having me again. No problem. Brentley, how everything going with you, man? Going good, man. Uh, just finished week one. Uh, obviously, we just watched the crazy ending of the Raiders-Ravens game. Um, you know, first game with fans in Vegas. What a night. Oh, man, it's a great night to be a fan of football. For sure. There was a, a lot going on as far as week one of NFL action. That's something we'll get into a little bit later. But before we get deep into our discussion, and we'll start off with the USC with Clay Hilton being fired. But before we get into that, I want to remind everybody that Bet Online, we're back and better than ever. All eyes are on the gridiron as teams are back on to start another football season. As always, Bet Online is your number one spot for all the pro and college football action this season. With a new updated site and interface, even more odds, props, and contests, BetOnline continues to be the number one source for everything football. Head over to the website to use your mobile device to sign up today to receive your 100% welcome bonus. That's double your initial deposit just for signing up. Don't forget to use promo code NFL100. That's NFL100. BetOnline, the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports. BetOnline, your online sports book experts. So let's go ahead and start off with USC and firing Clay Hilton. There, it kind of came out of left field for me. Uh, I was just walking outside with the family, and then I get the notification about Clay Hilton being fired. So you guys being West Coasters, you kind of are plugged in out there with Pac-12 and things that happen out there. And my initial thought was just like, what is the difference between losing to Stanford in week two as opposed to doing it last year? That was like my initial thoughts of what made them wait this long. So, Brentley, I'm going to come to you first. I know you're a Pac-12 aficionado, being an Oregon grad and things of that nature. So, initial thoughts of USC firing Clay Hilton, and then where do they go from here? Yeah, I mean, my initial initial thoughts is it sucks if you're an Oregon Duck fan or a Cal Berkeley alum like Dre. I mean, Clay Hilton was my second favorite coach in all college football. You know, he allowed Oregon to get all the good recruits out of Southern California. Um, so the thought of USC actually hiring a competent coach isn't one that I'm necessarily fond of. But obviously, I think this is a move USC probably should have made a few years back. They definitely should have made it after last season. And I think you said it best, like, what's the point of keeping a guy who we, you were just going to fire two games into the season? If he was really on that sort of a leash on the, such thin ice, you probably should have made the call, you know, last offseason, especially when names like Urban Meyer, you know, and, and names like that were available. 
And so to me, I think it's a complete mismanagement by USC's athletic department. Um, shows a lack of direction, in my opinion. Um, but I mean, ultimately, you know, he's gone. I guess timing really doesn't matter at this point. Uh, they're in the market for a new head coach, and I, I expect them to, you know, have a lot of suitors because obviously at USC, while they haven't been the program they were under Pete Carroll, they're still easily a top seven job in all of college football. And when you have the right coach in that program, they can build a powerhouse. You know, I mean, there's very few places like Southern California in terms of the talent, um, the history, the, the the prestigious University of USC football. Um, so I think, you know, if they can get it right, which as a Duck fan, I'm a little torn because obviously I want the Pac-12 to be good, but I don't, really, I don't really want USC to become a powerhouse again. But, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure on this athletic director to get this one right. Yeah, and the early leader in the clubhouse, based on rumors, is Luke Fickle from Cincinnati, just because the athletic director now at USC was the one that hired Fickle when he was at Cincinnati. So he's the early leader in the clubhouse. But, you know, rumors are rumors right now, and this thing is far from the finish line. But I'm going to come to you, Dre, also a Pac-12 guy through and through. Just what are your overall thoughts on USC? And then, like, what happened? Like, how did they get so bad so fast? Uh. You know, it's probably, man, I think when you really uh, look at the entire scope, it's probably a mixture of a few things. It probably isn't just one thing. I mean, uh, Clay Helm has been there for six, seven years, uh, which is, a, which is you know, a pretty long time considering uh, how, uh, how, um, how these days, like, you have a head coach who's typically on a shorter leash. I mean, so he has been there for uh, for some time uh they are like that job is a very prominent job it's a prominent school i think that they haven't done as well a job recruiting as they uh probably uh would have liked um and haven't gotten you know enough talent there um with it being you know a school that's used to getting you know uh the prominent players on the west coast as well as uh throughout throughout, throughout the entire the entire country i think it's contributed to the downward spiral uh, of the entire pro- uh, the entire program. I mean, but Clay, uh, Clay did an admirable an admirable job uh, for a good amount of his time there. Um, but sometimes changes uh, changes change is inevitable, and sometimes it is absolutely necessary. So, it's time to go. You know what I was thinking, and this is something that kind of crossed my mind when you said recruiting, Dre. Just think of all the quarterbacks at the big programs now. You got DJ Uwe Ungalele, who's a California kid. You got Bryce Young, who's a California kid. You got who's an Arizona kid. Matt Corral is from California too, if I'm not mistaken. Why are these quarterbacks leaving? Why are they leaving the state? I don't know. Um, But I think that the allure of the program has gone somewhat downhill. And and to add to the names, you just said, I mean, the cornerback at, uh, at LSU, uh, Eli Rich, will be a first-round uh, draft pick uh, um, here soon within the next year. Um, so uh, he is from from uh, from Southern California, went all the way to LSU. And so you know, I think that uh, at the end of the day, it's still a player's league. It's, it's still a player's game, and you always need good players, man, to uh, to have a, to have a, a great program. And I think the thing that, that I think the thing that's hurt 
USC and really most of the Pac-12 schools is, you know, besides Washington and Oregon in the college football playoffs, there's been no Pac-12 team to make it. Um, you know, you want, meanwhile, you have your Oklahomas, your Ohio States, your Clemsons, and your Alabamas that are, are just essentially guaranteed locks in the playoff year in and year out. So if you're a DJ Uwe Ungalale or a Bryce Young or, you know, a Matt Corral or whoever, right, one of these top five-star California, Southern California quarterbacks, if your ultimate goal is to play um, in those big games, those national championship level games, it just makes obvious sense to go to Ohio State, to go to Alabama, to go to a Clemson. Those are the teams that have been consistently in the playoffs for the past seven years or so, for the past eight years. And, you know, until a team like a USC, a team like an Oregon can consistently make the playoff, why would it, Why would I, if I'm a top quarterback in the country, no matter where I'm from, go play at USC? Like, I want to play it with the best. And, and right now, unfortunately for the teams on the West Coast, the best is in the SEC and, in, and really in the Big Ten. Um, and then Clemson, obviously. So um, I think whoever this next guy is, just like Cristobal, you know, the next, the next head coach at USC, he's not only going to have to have the pressure of USC, but he's also going to have the pressure of the Pac-12 conference because, you know, this pains me to say it, but the Pac-12 is really only going to go as far as USC football because ultimately that's the, the biggest brand in our conference. They're the blue blood. Um, and really, it's, it's, it's only them in Oregon as of late, but traditionally, USC is the power out West, and we need that program to be good in order for these kids to start staying home on the West Coast. Yeah, and, you know, when we think of USC, we think of Reggie Bush, Matt Liner, Steve Smith, Mike Williams, and these guys, and these kids didn't grow up watching that. All they know is the college football playoffs, so I think that's something else that plays into it as well just the brand that we think of with usc they're not used to seeing that and they know who reggie bush is but they didn't actually see him play they just see highlights of it but we actually saw these guys play matt leinert uh, some of the other players that i named off that were at usc we saw usc in their heyday so i think that's another thing that's kind of gotten out of touch with usc they're still kind of living off of that legacy and it's hurting them a little bit the brand isn't that strong as what it once was. But that's a perfect segue back to a segue to let's go ahead and go to our game recaps. And we can combine this with some game balls in each game as well. And Oregon, they went to Ohio State. And I mean, they put it on the Buckeyes. That, I think that was one of the biggest surprises of the week. They end up getting the victory 35 to 28 in what was a thrilling game all the way into the end. But I was really surprised with how they came out and played, especially being down Kayvon Thibodeau and then also Justin Flo a player we'll be talking about a lot in a couple years from now as well. So, Brinley, of course, I'm going to come to you first. Um, just what was your feeling just watching that game? I know you were a proud alum after that game. Yeah, I mean, to have that game, you know, as an Oregon alum, after the way Oregon looked week one against Fresno, I mean, I couldn't be more surprised. Like, I knew if Oregon was able to run the ball, which they were able to do, exceptionally well to have a chance um you know i mean I thought, I, thought, I thought the offensive line was phenomenal um they shut down zach harrison and haskell garrett 
got a lot of push up front, opening up huge lanes for CJ Verdell and Travis Dye and gave Anthony Brown a lot of time to sit back and pass the ball. So, I mean, game balls to them as a unit because they were absolutely outstanding. And then defensively, it was a really inspiring performance. Like, as you mentioned, without KT, without Justin Flo, you know, we weren't getting a lot of pass rush and CJ Stroud was able to sit back and pick us apart. But I thought overall the secondary played really, really well. You know, guys like Michael Wright, Barone McKinley, who are two draft eligible guys who I thought really helped themselves on Saturday. But also young guys who, you know, maybe we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about in a few years, but like Dante Manning, freshman corner, uh, DJ James, another, I think, freshman's corner. I thought those guys have really held their own. And Crystal Lava and Garrett Wilson, they got theirs, but when it mattered most, you know, the Oregon secondary made enough plays to, to really pick the ball away. Um, and so, you know, it, it was a great win for the Ducks, great win for the Pac-12. Um, and if you're Ohio State, you got some problems. You really do. I mean, I, I was not expecting Oregon to beat them up on the, on the lines of scrimmage, both offensively and de- defensively. I was not expecting to see that because that's exactly what took place. And Ohio State has the bigger – more talented, more physical dudes, yet they got pushed around all game. So I'm not sure what the deal is for that program or how they, they need to look in the mirror and figure out, you know, what kind of team they want to be. But if I'm a Buckeyes fan, I I'm, I'm I have some questions about the program right now in terms of what I just saw on Saturday. Yeah, those whispers for I think Quinn Ewers are going to get much louder after last week. And I thought C.J. Stroud played fine. But – you know, everything's going to yeah. point to the quarterback. That's what everybody's going to point to. But they have some issues on defense. Like, my game ball goes to yeah. Joe Moorhead, the offensive coordinator for Oregon. The game plan that he was able to put together was just phenomenal. I thought his play calling was exceptional. Everything was timely. And he was just able to slow those defensive ends down so much with so many things that he was able to do. He did a great job of scheming them up. So, Dre, what was your overall thoughts on the game? Yeah, uh, a few things, man. You know, I thought that – uh the thing, the thing that I, that I took from it in terms of the Ohio State offense was that offense is a quarterback-friendly offense, and it, it would probably make just about any quarterback look exceptional, man, because they was was scheming guys open like guys were running free a lot, and uh, while they still lost, I think that you can certainly tell that Day is a, a great a, a great play caller, um, and that the offense was a was a very quarterback friendly, but overall, uh, the two kids who impressed me the most from Oregon was, of course, Anthony Brown and CJ Verdell. Played extremely well. Uh, they went to Columbus and uh, got the uh, got the victory on a huge stage. Played exceptionally well. Um, so I I would certainly give uh, my two game balls to both uh, both Anthony Brown and CJ Verdell. Uh, on offense for sure. And I'm glad you mentioned Brown and Verdell, just because, Brentley, you said on the last show that, I mean, Verdell was going to be the key to the victory, giving him 20 to 25 touches. That was going to be the key. But I don't think anybody expected Anthony Brown to go out and play as well as he did, especially considering how much or how, I wouldn't say bad, but how much he struggled against Fresno, how inconsistent he was in that game. But I got another name that I wrote down that I took away that I did not know about before. And his name was Brandon Dorless. He's a defensive tackle. 
from Oregon. He wore number three. He was really disruptive, and he actually leads the country in pressures right now. So uh, my eyes weren't deceiving me then when I was watching him. He was disruptive in the past throughout the game, but he has some work to do as far as a run defender. So keep an eye on Brandon Dorless. He's a name to monitor as the year goes along. But I want to go ahead and get to this next game, and we're going to go to Michigan against Washington. Another one that was just <laughs> absolute um, dreadful game to watch, in my opinion, just because you guys know I'm not a defensive person at all. So just watching these low scoring, slow moving type of games is just hard for me to watch. But the Michigan offense wasn't overly explosive and Washington is just bad on offense. They just have no playmakers at all. Um, but the big matchup of the the weekend as far as I, what I thought was the best prospect versus prospect matchup was Jackson Kirkland versus Aiden Hutchinson. And Aiden Hutchinson is going to be the guy that I think had the best performance, not only in this game, but of any prospect throughout the country. He gets my game ball. I mean, you talk about the, the motor that he plays with. He's so polished as a pass rusher and then just the effort that he plays with. And there was one rush move of where he didn't initially get to the quarterback. He actually slipped, got back up, and then was able to make a TFL. So him being able to go out and answer some question marks that he had last year after having the leg fracture surgery, was only able to play in three games. So if he's able to stay healthy this year, you're talking about him entering that tier with Drake Jackson to possibly being the second best edge rusher in this class behind Kayvon Thibodeau. And then there may be some people that like him better than Thibodeau, as crazy as it is to say, just because of the polish that he walks through the door with right now. So, um, Dre, I'm going to come to you first. Just what was your initial thoughts of not only Washington, but also Michigan as well from this game? And who were some prospects that may have caught your eye? I think, uh, I think first and foremost, uh, Washington defense has quite a few players uh, that will play on Sundays. Uh, I think they'll, they'll probably uh, they'll probably want to burn the state after this because Michigan uh, ran the football often and effectively. They completely out physical to watch this hybrid defensive front. Washington try, try to shift uh, shift between the even and odd run. and still had no answers for the uh, for Michigan's ground game, and I think that that was was uh, was something to me that was extremely telling. I mean, if the Oregon game was great. Pack ten. This really put the Pack twelve down as far as as far as a performance on a huge stage. I mean, so um, I think that uh, um, Michigan ran for three hundred and fifty yards and four touchdowns. Aiden Hutchinson played extremely well. Um, I think that uh, uh, that Jackson Kirkland, uh, while he looked uh, looked uh, looked good at first, he certainly needs to get stronger, uh, particularly uh, in his lower body. And you shared that thought on Kirkland on Saturday when we were actually watching the game live of saying that he just needs to get stronger. And I think he might have lost too much weight just because, you know, he played guard at around, I think, like 325 pounds. But now he's so thin in his lower half, man. Like he has he was trying to anchor, but Hutchinson was just walking him back to the quarterback. He just doesn't have any sand in his pants to nail his feet down into the ground and anchor. So, yeah, I'm with you. He definitely needs to get stronger. But, of course, you love the athleticism. You love the flashes that he shows. But when he tries to anchor and guys just run down the middle of him, he just has nothing to hold his weight back on. But I'm going to come to you now, Brentley. What was your overall thoughts on the game? I mean, my overall thoughts, not talking prospects, is are we are we sure um, uh, Clay Helton's the only coach that needs to be fired? 
I mean, Jimmy Lake, I, I, he, needs, he, he needs to be a defensive coordinator again and DB coach. I don't know if he needs a head coach because this is two weeks in a row, his team that looks unprepared, completely outmatched. And week one, it was against Montana, for, for gosh sake. And, and Michigan might be understandable, but as Dre said, you know, that was, and again, it was a national embarrassment for the Pac-12 uh, when we were just coming off of UCLA and Oregon, you know, showing up for the conference. And Washington, to me, has been – by far the most disappointing team in the conference. And even last year, they weren't really any good. And their quarterback this year, I think his name's Morris, might be the worst passer at all of, of, of FBS football. I mean, he's terrible. Um, and so I, I have major red flags on Jimmy Lake. Um, but again, I guess it's, that's neither here nor there. But in terms of prospects, you guys, hit, you guys hit the nail on the head, Hutchinson. He's so impressive with his hands, the leverage he plays with, the motor. Um, the, the power that he, that he, he shows, um, you know, obviously I think the easy comparison to make is, is Joey Bosa-esque in terms of the number, just the way he plays, the way he wins with his hands and, and using his leverage and really setting up defense, setting up offensive tackles. It's really reminiscent of the Bosa. I don't, I don't think, he, I don't think Hutchinson is the athlete of either of the Bosa's. So I think both, both those two are very underrated athletes. I think they're outstanding athletes. But Hutchinson's play style is very reminiscent, and he's certainly helped himself. You know, I think we had him somewhere in the 20s heading into the yeah. season on a TDN 100 board. I mean, he's he's skyrocketing. He's easily a top 15 player at this point in, in time, in my opinion, based on what we've seen this season. And on the flip side, you know, Jackson Kirtland, that was, as as you guys have mentioned, that was a resume game. You know, that was a, that was a game that he really needed to show up facing a potential uh, a first round pick in Aiden Hutchinson and he got work, you know, plain and simple Hutchinson beat him time and time again. And Kirkland, you know, really showed some of his flaws that we all kind of pointed out, which he lacks anchor. He's not that firm at the point of attack and that's stuff he really needs to work on. And, but I think, I think it was one of you guys said it best in summer scouting. It's easier to get alignment stronger than it is to get them more athletic and being able to play in space. And so I still am not going to sell my stock on Kirkland. I still love the tools, still love the feet, still love the athleticism, but I do think he needs to spend some time in the weight room, get some weight on his frame if he's being if he's gonna be able to hold up a tackle at the NFL. That second offensive tackle race is wide open right now behind Evan Neal. That was my biggest takeaway after watching some of the games this weekend. And I think Neil has played really well this year so far, even though they haven't played a huge test yet. I don't think Miami was a huge test for him. But, you know, Charles Cross and uh, Ekem Aquanu, they played against each other this weekend, not necessarily against each other. But Mississippi State and NC State played each other, and both of them were okay. Uh, Kenya Green, I haven't really watched a whole bunch of film this year. I haven't went back and watched or reviewed the Texas A&M film of how he looks at offensive tackle. But there's a lot of question marks as far as his offensive tackle class. Thayer Mumford's actually slid inside. So uh, Darian Kennard, I think he's played well so far this year. Kentucky is looking really good right now. But, you know, the offensive tackle class has a lot of question marks behind Evan Neal right now. So that's another takeaway that I just wanted to mention. But staying in the SEC – um, as far as going from Evan Neal in Alabama to Texas and uh, Arkansas, which I thought was one of the bigger shockers of the weekend, honestly. Arkansas gets the victory 40-21, to 21, 
And I thought it was going to be a better game than what it was, but Arkansas dominated Texas in the trenches, 333 rushing yards. And you just know a Sam Pittman-led team, that's exactly how he wanted to win the game, former offensive line coach. And, you know, he was telling the OC to keep running the ball. You know, that's his forte as an offensive line coach. But they dominated the game from start to finish. And Texas, everybody says that they were back, but obviously Texas is not back. I was really surprised that, that Sark wasn't able to scheme up some more open things and score some more points against Arkansas. And my biggest takeaway is just you want to enter the SEC, but you can't even compete with Arkansas. And, you know, Arkansas is nowhere near the top of the SEC. So I, I was I was real disappointed with how Texas played this weekend. But, Brentley, I'm going to come back to you first. Uh, what, what was your biggest takeaway from Arkansas uh, whooping up on Texas? Man, I think I said on, thir- on fr- last Friday's show that – I thought there was a lot of pressure on Sark heading into this game. And I thought, you know, this is, you know, as big of a must win game as you can possibly have for a first year head coach. You know, this is your first time facing an SEC opponent. If you're Texas this season, you know, after being uh, included in the SEC for 2025, this is a game you you want to come out and make a statement. Like, Hey, like, yeah, we belong in this conference. And, you know, we're going to we're going to kick your butt. You know, if, if I'm Texas, I'm, if I'm looking at Arkansas, because you mentioned Arkansas is their doormat program in the SEC. I mean, they're they're, they're not even a middle tier program um, and they got worked. I mean, they got absolutely spanked. Arkansas came in and dominated from day one from, from, from opening from opening whistle to the very end, full 60 minutes. They beat Texas up and they out physical them. They just look tougher than them, look more athletic than them. And if you're Texas and you're supposed to be a blue chip program, you cannot have that. And I'm not putting a lot on this on Sark. Obviously, this these are not all his players, but as a program, that that's a tough loss to swallow. Um, so I, I'm if I'm Texas and I'm looking at going to the SEC in a few years, I'm making sure I'm doing everything I can to recruit some dudes because what they currently have is not going to cut it. No, it's not. And, you know, Sarge is going to need some time to get his guys in there. But we'll see. It's definitely a difference from when he had the best players on the field calling plays at Alabama as opposed to what he has now. He has some quarterback issues going on. I think they made the switch officially today. Uh, So we'll see how they do end up finishing uh, the rest of the year. But, Dre, I'm going to come to you. Just what were your overall thoughts on the game? Yeah, man, uh, you all said it, man. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think that Texas is uh, is, is ready to compete uh, in the SEC. Um, I think that the one area uh, where where he really needs to raise the program is getting bigger, stronger, and more physical uh, up front. When you think about teams that play in the SEC, they're usually physical, uh, physical and dominant um, up front. So if he's going to compete in the SEC, he's going to have to some, somehow turn that program into a more uh, more uh, more physical uh, program and to recruit some uh, some uh, some more uh, more physically imposing uh, offensive line. Defense, oh, go ahead, Dre. Uh, defensive line, uh, defensive line as well. Yeah, I was going to say I think that's where Crystal Ball has done a really good job at Oregon. Just because if you think about Oregon, they were kind of known as that finesse team that really just likes to make games attract me and just outrun you and beat you with angles as opposed to just running the ball right at you. That's why I think Oregon is starting to have so much success 
and Crystal Ball is really starting to turn the program around there. But being a former offensive line guy, he has success at Alabama and Miami, so he knows the blueprint as far as recruiting and then just how to improve in the trenches as well. I don't know if Sark is going to be able to do that. Not saying he can't, but I just think Crystal Ball has more of an idea of what he wants to do and then how to go about executing it as well. And I think Oregon, I think there's like a top-ranked tackle in Texas that Oregon was able to steal out of Texas as well. So not a great start for Sark in recruiting. But I'm going to go ahead and go to our last game, which is Iowa and Iowa State. Iowa ends up getting the victory 27-17. to 17. A bunch of prospects playing in this game. Brock Purdy, Brees Hall, and plenty of others as well on both sides of the football. Will McDonald from Iowa State is another standout player. Charlie Kolar, the list goes on and on of some of the prospects that were playing in this game. But once again, Iowa takes home uh, the rivalry. Um, they've been dominating the rivalry over the past decade or so as well. And, you know, there were some timely plays of from, Ohio, from excuse me, from Iowa State that was just bad. Brock Purdy did not play well at all. Brees Hall had a timely fumble as well that set up the last touchdown for Iowa as well. But, Dre, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, what were your biggest takeaways from the game and who maybe were some prospects that maybe stood out to you in a positive or even a negative way? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the two uh, two. Uh, two most prominent players uh, on Iowa's uh, on Iowa State's team, of course, with Brock Purdy and Brees Hall, and uh, certainly uh, they didn't uh, didn't didn't play well. Um, Brock is the name who's been kind of hot for the past few years, as far as being you know a French guy to to uh, this, some people uh, talk to make the jump to become something, and he just has not played well. There were some people who had Brock uh, going in the first round. This past year, and I'm not sure uh, exactly why, but he is he he has not played well since. Um, he actually was benched uh, through three picks, and of course, uh, you uh, we talked about the timely uh, of fumble by Brees Hall. I mean, so I think that, uh, that there are two guys who uh, who didn't play well. Of course, Tyler Lewis the ball, he showed well, uh, played uh, played physical. Would like to see him gain some weight, though. I mean, but uh, but he is a, a he, he's certainly a player that is square on the mind of scouts all around the country. Absolutely, yeah. Linderbaum had a block in that game that was just ridiculous. He has that wrestler background as well that you love to see from a center as well. But Brentley, I'm coming to you. What were your overall thoughts on the game? Yeah, I thought it was a good game. Um, the Iowa was in control for most of it. Iowa looks like they're they could really compete for a Big Ten title. I mean, to be honest with you guys, I mean, based off what I've seen from Ohio State, and not to take too much away from Ohio State, but again, I don't think this is Ohio State team of old. So I think this could be a year where Iowa actually gives them a serious challenge. And we know what they have in the center of Tyler Linda Mom. I thought the running back looked really good. Um, and the quarterback just takes good care of the football. And the defense always flies around the football with Kirk Ferentz as head coach. And there's one player in particular, I think I talked about him on, on Fridays, is Riley Moss. And this is someone I didn't really know about, the corner from Iowa. But, you know, in week one, he against Indiana, he had two interceptions. Um, and then, to, uh, then on Saturday against uh, Iowa, Iowa State, he had another eight tackles. So this guy's always running the football. He's long, he's fast, he's a straight-line speed kind of guy. Um, the guy, the kid's just making plays. I think he's on a heater right now, and if he continues that, I mean, he's going to continue to vault up the draft board. And, I, again, I haven't studied him. I don't know what his ceiling is, but 
he is a name that just keeps popping up, you know, and he's, he's productive in these big moments and that's ultimately, you can't, you can't ignore that, you know? And so uh, he's another name I, I would, I would write down if you're watching Iowa the rest of the season, check out for number 33 in their defensive backfield because all this kid has done is made plays all year. Yeah, there was a lot of standout performances in this game. And, you know, Linderbaum was one. Moss, as you mentioned, I think was another as well. We had a really good game a week ago as well. But Iowa, Iowa State, they always have a bunch of players on the field that are eventually going to be good players on the next level as well. But let's go ahead and transition to the NFL now. We had week one that is officially in the books. And each one of us are going to share some takeaways and we can feed off of each other however we want to do this. Um, how it will work is each one of us will share pretty much our biggest takeaways. It could be two or three, or even if you want to add more, uh, that's really up to you guys. As I told you pre-show, there's so many different takeaways that I had. You know, my biggest one was just the contributions, the early contributions of the 2021 wide receiver class. We saw Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, and then also Jamar Chase all catch a touchdown. So that was one of my bigger takeaways. But also, Dre, you said this in our scouting meetings, and you said it frequently. Mike Tomlin's a winner, man. Everybody counted Pittsburgh out against Buffalo, saying that this was going to be the first year that he may have had a losing record. But Pittsburgh looked phenomenal on defense. I thought their offense has a ways to go. But as long as they stay strong on defense, they're going to hope that Najee Harris, this young offensive line, can come together. And then Big Ben can hopefully just string together what looks like his final year. But with Mike Tomlin, he just has a way of being infectious and getting his guys ready to play. And nobody, I mean, nobody expected Pittsburgh to beat Buffalo. Not only was it a win, but I thought it was a dominated performance, not on the offensive side, but on the defensive side. They flew around the ball. They were all over Josh Allen. Minka Fitzpatrick was absolutely phenomenal. Melvin Ingram came over and made a huge contribution. You add that in with T.J. Watt and then Cam Hayward as well. That defensive line was just ferocious, man. So... Mike Tomlin's a winner, man. I mean, I know it's only one week, but Pittsburgh is always going to find a way to be in it somehow, some way. So that was my two biggest takeaways. Um, Dre, did you have something you want to add to that? Yeah, man. Just the thing uh, for me that was uh, probably most impressive about the Pittsburgh win is how because their offensive line is extremely young. They got a lot of uh, new pieces, new uh, left tackle. I think they're they're – uh, they have new guards. I mean, so the way in which they won, plus Ben is a shell of his former self, man. I mean, so the fact that, like, it doesn't matter who's playing quarterback, he's won. It's Rudolph is one with, with a different type of players up front. They just continue to play well and continue to win. So I think that shows the sign of a great coach, somebody who can adjust um, and, and adjust their scheme um, to the players, the players that they have. Just a, a great leader, man. Like, that was a great win for Pittsburgh. And, I mean, myself, I didn't even expect them to play as well as they did. But I'm going to stay with you, Dre. What were some of your biggest takeaways from week one? I would have to say the Cardinals, man. Uh, I think the Arizona Cardinals were impressive. I actually thought that Vince Joseph scheme up a great uh, great game plan. Taylor Jones, of course, was was impressive. They had guys answer a ton of questions, man. They had that really Players who had asked some questions to Mars, they've been they've been moved uh, moved Josh Jones, you know the guard. He played well. Um, so um, Isaiah Simmons played well too. They had quite a few players who uh, who needed to answer the bell, and they did. 
I think that, uh, that was probably the most uh, most impressive thing about the game. Yeah, Tennessee looked bad, man. They looked bad on both sides of the ball, considering the explosiveness that they were expected to have. Julio was a non-factor besides the big penalty that he got on the third down. And then, you know, A.J. Brown didn't do much of anything. Ryan Tannehill looked out of sync the entire day. And then Chandler Jones, five sacks, just ridiculous. He whooped up on Taylor Lewan the entire day. Even made him come out and tweet after the game. He basically said, thank you for, for exposing me, which is something that I had never seen before. So, yeah, the Cardinals look good. We'll see if it does end up lasting. I think they have Minnesota this week who don't even get me started on how they looked this week. <laughs> Watching that game was terrible, man. Nearly 20 penalties. Offensive coordinator looked like a rookie, which he is. Uh, Kirk Cousins was so up and down. No, no, and. I don't even know where to start with that. I'm not even going to get on that. But I'm going to just go to you, Brentley. What What was your overall takeaways from week one? I mean, um, so obviously, I mean, the, the first game I wanted to watch was I wanted to see how Brandon Staley and the Chargers were going to look um, going cross country against the Washington football team, a very tough defense. And, I mean, I couldn't have been more impressed with just how they won. And so everyone knows the Chargers are known for losing – you know, very close one score games in the fourth quarter where I think they were down, they were up actually, excuse me, I think they were up 20 to 16 with four minutes left. And all they needed to do was just play four minute offense and kill the clock and dunk and, and keep the ball. And that's exactly what they did. And Herbert, I think for, for the day was 12 of 14 on third down, just absolutely just phenomenal um, on, on the gotta have it downs and Keenan Allen, he was uncomfortable all day. I mean, it, it was – I think he only had nine receptions for 100 yards, but he got open almost every single play. It, it was a clinic out there. and he, He's he's literally playing some outstanding football, um, even going back to last year. And so, to me, it's just the the growth I saw from Herbert yesterday and the, the, the way Staley had the team in the game late and was able to actually hold the lead – to me just shows that perhaps the organization is turning a corner and some of those game management miscues, special teams miscues, if they're a thing in the past, because talent's never been an issue with that franchise, they could be a real threat at a wild card spot and a really talented AFC. Um, you know, no, no, another uh, storyline or, or something I had was just the, really the play of some rookie quarterbacks, man. I thought, Zach Wilson. I'm not sure if you guys got a chance to watch that game, but that was actually one of the first games I wanted to watch this morning as a replay, just because I I was fascinated to see you know Sam Donald revenge game, Zach Wilson's first NFL start. Like I just want to see it. And when I tell you this Carolina uh, front seven was dominant all game. I mean they were in the backfield every single play. Wilson's running for his life, but. That being said, I thought Wilson showed me a lot of promise, man. Like, you see him using athleticism to escape the pocket, keep, keep his eyes downfield, deliver accurate balls. This kid has a live arm. He makes some throws. You're just like, how the hell did he make that? Like, across his body, just hit the edge on the field accurately. Um, and he was hurt by a lot of drops, too, man. His style would look even better. I watched him. He, he was really impressive. And so I think Jets fans, shout out to you, Chris Schuber, our producer, should be really encouraged with what they saw from Wilson. And then when my last guy is Mac Jones, man, I watched that every game of every snap of that game just because Tua and Mac, I definitely want to see that. 
I thought Mac thoroughly outplayed Tua. Just the eye test, you can see it. Like, Mac is going to be good, guys. I really think so. He's accurate. He's calm. He's delivered the football. He plays within the scheme of the offense. Is he ever going to be, you know, a, a explosive passer like a Mahomes or a, or a, um, you know, Justin Herbert or something like that? No, but like, he does what the offense asks him to do when he does it well. And you could win a lot of games doing that. Um, so I was really impressed by both Jones and Wilson on their first starts. And, and I think the NFL is in some good hands for young quarterbacks. So I'll kind of go backwards from the points that you made or bottom up, I should say. I thought Mac looked phenomenal. I mean, he looked so comfortable back there. And I agree with you. I think he definitely did outplay Tua. He just looked a little bit more comfortable than what Tua did back there. And McDaniels is in heaven right now just because this is the type of quarterback that yes. he's always used to winning with. He doesn't have to worry about design run game or quarterback run or anything like that, getting Cam in the groove of everything. He can just sit back, allow his pocket passer to dissect the defense pre and post snap and just let the ball fly. So I thought Mac looked really comfortable. Now with Zach Wilson against the Panthers, they just weren't able to protect him like Brian Burns. Uh, Sean Reddick, all those guys were in the backfield the entire game. Makai Beckton ended up getting hurt, and it just went downhill after that. But even when Beckton was out there, like even when Zach would throw a quick game, like he was getting hit. So kudos to him for hanging in there. And just I thought he played really well. And I think I, I think you're 110% spot on as far as like the flashes that he did show. He had a couple drops in that game. Um Mm-hmm. That were just phenomenal throws. Uh, he had one down the middle of the field. I forgot who it was to. He ended up dropping the ball, but it was just a drop in the bucket throw that I thought was phenomenal. And then Telesco's cooking with gas, man. Like he's got something special brewing right there. And Kenneth Murray led the led the team in tackles. He had 10, uh, which was his first round pick, along with Herbert. We know how well Herbert has been playing, but how about Rashawn Slater? Like he was unbelievable, man. Like for him to go out and do what he did against Chase Young in his very first NFL game was just, you couldn't ask for more as far as your blindside protector. Now you're talking about these premium positions. You're checking them off the list. So you assume you have a franchise quarterback in Herbert. You assume you have your franchise left tackle in Slater. Asante Samuel, I think he had close to 50 snaps in the game as well. So now you're talking about getting a contribution from your second round pick. Derwin James looked like him old his old self. I think he was the second leader amongst tackles on the team. He had like seven or eight, and then the pass deflection as well. So now and he, he played he played every snap yeah, too, which is the most important thing. Right, which is huge for him. So man, Charge, I think the Chargers got something special. I think they still might be a year away um, as far as competing with the likes of, you know, Cleveland or Kansas City and teams like that, which was a phenomenal game as well. But I think Telesco has something special brewing there, man. I really like what he's building. Yeah, and I'd be I'd be remiss not to at least bring up, you know, the job Panay Sewell did against Nick Bosa coming, you know, going back to his natural side on yeah. the left side. And, you know, it's another conversation for another day, but it's what do they do when Dak's back healthy in two weeks? Like clearly anyone who watched Sewell in the preseason looked how uncomfortable he was. Like he was getting beat routinely off the snap at right tackle. You invested what was the number seven overall pick your GM's fist bumping the owner. Yeah. Like you guys doing all that stuff. You can't, I don't know how you put Sewell back to right tackle. Um, 
Anyways, that I'm sure that'll be a topic for whenever that plays out. But I, I'm very curious to see what happens. No, I'm, I'm really fascinated about that. And you know, Dre, both of y'all have front office experience, but Dre, I'm a, I want your opinion on this. So you have Panay Sewell, who you invested the number seven overall pick in. He didn't look good at right tackle in the preseason. Obviously, he kicks over to the left side in his rookie debut, and he looks like the player that you intended on drafting. But now you have this franchise left tackle who's injured right now, but he comes back. You just paid him a ton of money. Do you kick him over to the right side? Or, I mean, what do you do in that dilemma? You know, I think that you would like for a guy who's young to stay in one position and groom him there. Because especially for a young guy coming into the league, like you don't want to move him around a lot because then they're doing tough thinking and he can't play fast. I mean, I think – in order to really maximize what you can have in school, you got to keep him in the same place and let him grow there and let him fail there first. I mean, so I would move him back over and slide your uh, left tackle back uh, back where he was and just allow them to grow and take his lumps uh, there. I think he's probably yes. I, I think he's probably going to end up being a top flight guard though. I mean, so yeah, I think. That is uh, most likely where his home is. So it's it's definitely a good problem to have to have two good tackles as opposed to no good tackles. I will say that, but that definitely is an interesting dilemma that you know Brad Holmes and also Dan Campbell are going to be dealing with as well. It'll be fun to watch that play out. Did you guys have anything else that you wanted to add uh, for Week One? Biggest takeaways or college football or anything in general? I think we covered it all, man. Yeah, man, it was fun show. Uh, a lot to cover. Went yeah. all the way back to USC with firing Clay Hilton, some of the possible candidates. We talked about college football recap as well. We went over Ohio State, Oregon, Michigan, Washington, Texas, Arkansas, and then Iowa and Iowa State. And then we finished off with our biggest week one takeaways. It's always fun. Of course, our show is presented by Bet Online. Uh, this is the Read Option Podcast for Brindley Wiseman, Trey Harris, and myself, Jordan Reed. Signing off, make sure to check out the Draft Network at thedraftnetwork.com. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Draft Network. And then make sure to follow us on every other social media platform. And then, of course, make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. Remember, we have switched over to a new podcast feed. The white background is the one that we have switched to. So switch away from the black background or the black logo from the Read Option podcast. Make sure to subscribe. Leave a five-star review. We will be back on Friday previewing week three of the college football season and also week two of the NFL as well. So see you guys on Friday. Thanks as always. We will be back soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.